0: Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table. and It really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. So I'm a white, heterosexual, cisgender, able man in my mid-30s. I was born to... Christian, middle-class, two-parent family here in Austin. If I was taking a privilege test, I could check almost every box. Does this mean that I'm inherently bad or oppressive? Of course not. All those things are completely out of my control. It's not the amount of advantage or disadvantage a person has that counts. It's what we do with them. But what all those characteristics do mean is that when it comes to the church in America, I belong. I have always belonged. There has never been a question as to whether an intrinsic characteristic about me would preclude me from belonging or fully participating or leading. In fact, I've been in vocational church ministry since I was 19 years old. I've worked at three different churches before starting Restore. And just for fun... I decided to go back and look this week at everyone I worked with at those three churches that held the title pastor and see how it broke down when it came to race and sex. So six were either women or people of color. Not bad, right? Well, except two of those three churches were really big and had a bunch of pastors on staff. So while six were either women or people of color, 57 were white men. That's over 90%. In seminary, I did a 120-hour master's program. If you know anything about seminary, you know that it's a ton of reading. We were often required to read, like, five or six books for a single class, and in the 40 classes I took, less than 3% of the books assigned were by women or people of color. If you struggle with math, like I do, that's a grand total of six books out of about 200. And the crazy part was, I remember this vividly, anytime a book was assigned by a woman or a person of color, our professors would be quick to add a disclaimer. I remember one professor assigning a book by Justo Gonzalez, who is a a preeminent theologian, historian, and then saying, just remember, this book was written by a Latino theologian, so it probably has some biases, just like, you know, prepare yourself for those. Yeah, i tell you, never once did I hear, just remember, this book was written by a man of European descent, so it probably has some biases. We all have biases. That's not the problem. The problem is pretending that one group of people don't have any, and then excluding or marginalizing everyone else. That's the problem. Ever wonder why theological bookstores and libraries have sections for black theology or Feminist theology, or Latin theology, or queer theology, or disabled theology. But no sections for white theology, straight theology, or masculine theology. Those are just theology. Because a book written from the perspective of a straight white man is assumed to be normative. And everything else needs a disclaimer. For most of my life, I'll be honest, I rarely thought about being white, or male, or heterosexual, or cisgendered, or able-bodied, or American. I was conditioned to believe all those characteristics were the norm, and everything else was abnormal, different, even less than. I was also blind to the advantages that came with those things and the disadvantages that came without them. This is the insidious nature of privilege. I love how pastor and author Dominique Gilliard talks about privilege in his phenomenal book, I've quoted up here before called subversive witness. He says this, privilege connected to embodiment, that is how our bodies are constructed, race, gender, health, and more, slowly but surely negates the fundamental biblical truth that we are all made equally in the image of God. It, therefore, subtly creates a sliding scale of humanity where some lives are respected, protected, and valued over and against others. Unequivocally proclaiming that privilege is a distortion of God's will frees us from being captive to it. Our Creator never intended for the divine image to be affirmed, respected, and protected in some more than others because of a person's race, ethnicity, gender, class, citizenship status, land of origin, sexuality, mental cognition, able bodiedness, physical attractiveness. Privilege is a distortion of God's will for humanity, it is an attack on the fundamental Biblical truth that we are all made in the image of God. It inherently teaches that some people bear God's image more fully than others, which is heretical. It is against what the Bible teaches. It is against who God is, what Jesus came to proclaim. Sadly, privileging some people over others, is, it's a story as old as humanity. But I'll tell you, my heart really breaks when I see how much it has infected the church. I know this is true of the church throughout history, but most of my expertise centers around how this has happened at churches in the United States over the last few centuries. You see, the church in America has a long and dark history of privileging some people over others. It has a long and dark history of hierarchies. Off the top of my head, I can think of dozens of people sitting in this room, watching online, who I know personally, who have experienced marginalization in a church because of an intrinsic characteristic they have absolutely no control over. Here at Restore, we want to be a part of changing that. And that's why our vision is to be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. That's why that welcome video that you saw at the very beginning so explicitly names characteristics that have historically led to marginalization or even complete exclusion. Age, race, gender, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, disability, country of origin, background, more. And finally, it is why we are starting today a new teaching series called All Inclusive, God's Big, Beautiful Family. I could have included Messi in there too, but I decided... The B alliteration was too good, I didn't want to do messy. Throughout this series, we're going to be looking at biblical stories in which commonly excluded people are radically included in God's family, and we're going to use some of the categories from our welcome video to do it. We're doing this for two reasons. Number one, we believe absolutely everyone should be included in God's big, beautiful, messy family, if they want to be, and number two, We will not see any meaningful progress in healing the division, marginalization, and exclusion that exists in our society until we rightly see each other as brothers and sisters. And the church, I'm going to beat this drum for the rest of my life, the church should be leading the way on this. We should be modeling this. That's what the first church did. Did you know there are these ancient historical manuscripts that we have from like the first and second century, from from secular, like, like Roman historians that talk about the first church and talk about how they were just baffled by the fact that anyone could belong? They were like, how did these like slaves and free people get together? How did these Jews and Gentiles get together? Why are women hosting things in their home? Why are they so altruistic? Why do they go pick up any baby that's been left on the street and bring it into their home like it's their own? Well, why do they do this? Like they were baffled by it. Our inclusion and love should baffle the world around us. That is who we should be as the church. But before we jump into this series, I want to pause and remind you that we're in the middle of something called our year around the table. We're calling it that based on that vision I mentioned a moment ago. We want to be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So back in August, we kicked off this year as a way to focus our attention on what it looks like to embody this vision, not just talk about it, but to be about it. And to do that, we've looked at six measures of what someone's life looks like when they are seated at Jesus' table and doing everything they can to follow him. Here they are. I depend on Jesus. I'm a part of the family. I live invitationally, I look for ways to be generous, I pursue justice for the marginalized, and I include everyone. Over the last six months, we've worked through different teaching series centered around each of these measures, being a part of the family, living invitationally, looking for ways to be generous. Last week, we just wrapped up our series on pursuing justice. Pastor C.G. killed it in an incredible job wrapping that series up for us. Over the next few weeks in this series, we're going to look at five intrinsic characteristics that have often led to marginalization and exclusion in the church. They are age, race, gender, socioeconomic status, and sexual orientation. And each week we will look at a story from either the life of Jesus or the early church where someone from these groups is radically included in God's family rather than excluded, usually to the surprise and chagrin of some religious people, which is my favorite part. Now I want to make something really clear about this series and about this measure we have to include everyone. We are not talking about half-hearted acceptance of people. We're talking about full inclusion in God's family and in our church family. Not just apathetically ushered in, but welcomed with open arms. Not just allowed to participate, but empowered to lead. Not just tolerated, celebrated and loved and cared for. This value, full inclusion, is absolutely integral to everything that we do here at Restore. Now, like all of my messages, how I explain kind of each one of these over the next few weeks is more personal to me and to my understanding of Scripture. I'm offering an interpretation of how we got here, not the interpretation on how everyone gets here. We fully realize that a diverse church means diverse opinions, and we are so comfortable with that. But I want to be very honest with you. If you believe that someone's age, race, gender, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, disability, background, or country of origin keeps them from being fully included in every part of this church family, you're going to have a hard time here. I love you, and I care for you, and I want you to stay forever. But you're going to have a little bit of a hard time. The great Christian philosopher Dallas Willard once said, the aim of God in history is to create an all-inclusive community of loving persons, with himself included in that community as its prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. This is God's mission, and we are a part of it, a small community of all-inclusive, loving people inside of God's big, beautiful, global family. Now, there's a tendency to get myopic with this family language here, Some have argued that we should only love and include fellow church members or people who identify as Christians, but I believe that is a complete misunderstanding of the mission of God and the message of Jesus. Let me explain what I mean. See when the religious leaders asked Jesus what the most important thing in the world was, what did he say? Love God, love your neighbor. Now the people who asked the question, they were comfortable with the love God part, remember? although some of them kind of mistakenly believed that that meant following a bunch of religious rules, most of them made up by the religious leaders themselves. But they were less comfortable with the love your neighbor part. And so they asked Jesus a follow-up question. Does anybody remember what it was? Who's my neighbor? Translation, who am I really required to love? Jesus. Is it just people in my immediate family? Just people who share my ethnicity, people who live next to me, people who are part of the same congregation, who baseline it for me, Jesus? Who am I really minimum requirement here to love? To answer that question, Jesus tells the famous story we've come to know as the Good Samaritan. And in it, Jesus makes the most hated, most excluded, most unworthy person the religious leaders could think of the hero of the story. And then he concludes by saying, love that guy and love like that guy. The moral of the story is this, everyone is your neighbor. Even the person you wrongly believe to be your enemy is your neighbor. Without privilege or prejudice, followers of Jesus are called to love all people and welcome anyone who wants to into God's family. I really strongly believe that there are two kinds of people in this world. Children of God who have already found their place in his family and children of God who are trying to find their place somewhere else. We are not only brothers and sisters with fellow Christians, we are brothers and sisters with all of humanity. Jesus makes this clear in his story about the prodigal son. Even when the younger brother denounces his family, turns his back on his father and runs away from his home, he is still his father's son. We know this because as soon as he comes home, the father says, let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was lost, but now he is found. Listen, there was a time when the son was lost, but there was never a time when he was not a son. There was a time when the son was lost, but there was never a time when he ceased to be a son, a child. I believe this is true of all humanity. Some of us have stumbled back home and experienced the fullness of God's big, beautiful family firsthand. I know that is many of your stories. It's my story. Others are looking for that fullness and family somewhere else. And tragically, many times they are looking for it anywhere except in God's family. Sometimes because they've been told they don't have a place here. And that's not their fault. That's our fault. That's our fault. So many have been marginalized or outright excluded because of who they are or where they came from. So, if anyone can be a part of God's family, and if everyone is either a lost or found child of God, then shouldn't we encounter each person? Shouldn't we treat each person we encounter as a sibling? as a full image bearer of God. I just want to stop for a second. How would that change the world if we did that? If every single person we encountered we thought of as our sibling, as a child of God, as a full image bearer, lost or found wherever they are on this spiritual journey, whatever they have been through, what if we saw people like that instead of all the other qualifiers that we see them as first? First and foremost, we saw them as a child of God, a sibling of ours. It changed change everything, I think. And this is how we seek to do family here at Restore. You know, I do the coffee things, right, where I, I go to coffee with you guys or do a Zoom call or whatever. And a question I get a lot is like, I, I want to be a member. What does, it, what does it mean to be a member here at Restore? And some of you have backgrounds where uh, you were in churches where they did like covenant membership, you know, where it's an agreement, you kind of sign. Some of them are more intense than others. I've heard stories of, you know, you got to put the bank account numbers on there. They check that 10% comes out each month, all that kind of stuff. We don't make you sign a membership covenant or, or take a bunch of classes. Here at Restore, if you want to be a part of the family, you can be. That's it. If you want to be a part of the family, you can be. Now, like any family, there are things we ask each member to do. We want you to be a part of the community by coming on Sundays, by being in a restore group. We want you to give generously of your time to volunteer on one of our teams or with our community partners all around the city. We want you to give generously of your finances. Like I said earlier, we're a 100% donor-funded nonprofit, which means all of our ministries and partnership work are funded by you, me, our church family. And we want you to show up for other family members who are struggling, or hurting, in pain. These are the expectations of being a part of the family at Restore. But here's the thing. Even if you don't do those things, we will not kick you out. That's not how families work. I struggle so much. Like, I don't think there's a right way or wrong way to do church membership. I think that is way blown out of proportion, and I think you'd, you know... Do it the way you're led and the church you're in and all of that kind of stuff. I think there are harmful ways that it can be done for sure. But if you're going to use the word family, the language family, like we should be kicking a lot less people out of families, right? <laughs> because we all have that family member who comes late to every function, forgets to bring the food they signed up for. Or it's just in an overwhelming season of life, and and we don't see them much anymore. Do they get kicked out of the family? I hope not. But There's one thing that prevents someone from being a part of the family here at Restore, and that is continually hurting someone without repentance or remorse. So allow me a quick rabbit trail here. I get this question all the time, and I don't think I've ever talked about it kind of up here on stage before. How many of you have ever heard of the term church discipline? church discipline. Okay. I think church discipline is one of the most misused and abused concepts in in probably all of kind of church. It's based on the words of Jesus from Matthew 18. He says this, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, Jesus is giving us guidance on how to settle the issue of someone hurting someone else. That's why it says, if someone sins against you. Now, the problem is that many churches have ignored the against you part and use this passage to just kick anyone out that they don't like, that's causing problems, that they accuse of sinning too much or sinning differently than they do. But if that was the case, right, if that's what Jesus meant, the church wouldn't have anyone in it, right? I would be one of the first ones that would get kicked out. Because we all sin constantly. We struggle. We fall short. So what ends up happening is church leaders use this passage to rid their congregation of kind of anyone they don't like or anyone they harbor prejudice against. But that's not what Jesus outlines here, right? The passage says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go talk to them about it. You tell them, hey, Gail, sorry, I love you, I saw you. Gail comes to me and Gail says, Zach, this really hurt. You did this thing. And I've really been struggling with it. I've been thinking about how to bring it up. And, And I just want you to know, like, it was really difficult and painful. And the text says, right, if you have that conversation and somebody comes back and they say, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I had no idea, or I was having a bad day, or or whatever, then then you've won a sibling back, right? You've restored a relationship that was broken. But if I said, Gail, I don't care. I'm gonna do me, you know? If it hurts you, it hurts you. Sorry about it, good luck. Then she's supposed to go and get someone else, someone else who has seen the dynamic, a dynamic where I am continually hurting Gail. So she goes and gets Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah and Gail come, and they say, Zach, I know Gail already talked to you about this, but you are hurting her, like, over and over and over again. She told you that it was bad. She told you that it was hard. She, she told you, and you said you don't care. Jeremiah's like, I think you said, I'm going to do me, which doesn't even make sense. Why'd you say that? <laughs> and if I say, oh, my, I, I, Gail, I'm sorry. You know, I'm, Jeremiah, thanks for coming to this. I, I, I didn't know. Like, okay, I'm in. I'm back. I'm sorry. Then you've won a sibling back. But if I continue to say, no, I don't care. Shirk the responsibility. I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't care if I hurt you. I don't care if I hurt anyone else. This is what I'm doing. Then there's supposed to be a group that comes. I'm going to stop calling names out. <laughs> and a group of you come to me. And say, Zach, you're hurting Gail. And you don't care. Why? Why? What is going on? We've all seen it. It's become a huge issue in our church family. Can't you see this? You you need to see this because if you don't see it, I don't know if this is the place for you anymore. Because we cannot have people continually hurting others without remorse or repentance when it's been continually brought to their attention. And if I say, all right, you're right, I'm sorry. Gain the a sibling. But if not, Jesus says, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. Now, this might seem confusing if you know much about Jesus's life, because he spent a lot of time hanging out with pagans and tax collectors. They seem to be some of his very favorite people. But both of these groups engaged in predatory and abusive actions toward other people, Right? The pagans in Jesus' day engaged in a number of abusive practices, including child sacrifice. And while tax collectors were notorious for stealing from and exploiting other people, they were always in trouble. Jesus hung out with these folks a lot, but here's the thing. He was constantly calling them to leave those abusive practices behind and become a part of a loving family where they could be a sibling. That's what happened to Matthew, remember? Right? The disciple was a tax collector. Zacchaeus, wee little man, got in a tree, right? He left the tax. And do you remember what Zacchaeus did when he left the tax collecting behind? He didn't just leave it behind. He repaid everyone he'd stolen from. That's what it means. Jesus is calling us here. So when Jesus says treat them like a pagan or a tax collector, it doesn't mean cut them off. It doesn't mean never let them come back. But it does mean that they have to stop abusing people without remorse before they are welcomed back into the family. This has happened one time in six-plus years at our church. It was one of the most terribly painful things I've ever gone through. I wept through the whole process. And even though it took a while, I'm thankful that there was eventually some reconciliation. But this is what it means to be a small part, a community of all-inclusive, loving people inside of God's big family. It's both the messiest and most beautiful thing I have ever been a part of. Because a community like this, it's not only radical. In a world where there's so much division and exclusion, an all-inclusive loving family is countercultural. My hope and prayer is that the all-inclusive communities which make up God's big, beautiful family would set the standard for how all people in our world should be treated with dignity and respect and love. And I also hope it will start to heal the brokenness caused by division, marginalization, and exclusion in our society. And as I said earlier, over the next few weeks, we're gonna look at biblical stories from the life of Jesus in the early church where commonly excluded people are radically included in God's family. And so with the couple of minutes I have left this morning, we're gonna talk about a group that I don't think we usually think of, As marginalized in the church? Kids. See, in the first century world Jesus lived in, children were essentially property. Like, you just kind of did whatever you wanted with them. You couldn't be held accountable for anything. That's no longer true today, but kids are still often looked down upon or seen as kind of a nuisance in the church. We want to see the babies all swaddled up in the lobby. We don't want to hear them cry in here, right? We didn't even plan that. We want to say hi to them when they're running around after church. But when they're sitting in the row in front of us, and they turn around and they wave in the middle of the sermon. We don't want to say hi to them then, right? Now, look, I get it. I got kids of my own. <laughs> I need a break sometimes. (laughs) No shame. But if we're truly going to be a family, that includes the youngest among us. And here's the thing, y'all. It means not just tolerating their presence, but actually listening to them and learning from them. In fact, Jesus told us we have a lot to learn from kids In Mark chapter 10, he was sitting and teaching crowds of people in Judea. And this is what Mark writes. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He was PO'd. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He keeps going, truly I tell you. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Now the disciples here, they get a bad rap, but they're really doing what is culturally expected of them, keeping the children from interfering with Jesus' time of teaching. But Jesus tells them, stop hindering them. Let the little children come to me. They are included. They are welcomed, but it goes beyond that. They're not just tolerated, they're celebrated. He says anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like this little child will not enter into it. Anyone have experience with kids? How do they receive something? Show me with your hands. Look at that. Right? With their hands out, arms open. Ready to fully embrace what is being given to them, fully participate in whatever is coming their way. Jesus says, This is how all of us should receive and participate in the kingdom of God. We can learn how to be more, listen to this, we can learn how to be more fully formed followers of Jesus by emulating the kids in our church family. That's amazing. Children are meant to be celebrated, not just tolerated. And like children, we are called to be arms out, all in, all inclusive when it comes to the family of God. So over these next four weeks, we're going to look at how God radically included four other categories of people, folks who have been previously excluded based on race, gender, socioeconomic status, and sexual orientation by the end of it, I hope that we are all even more committed to including everyone and practicing inclusion, not just here at Restore, but in every area of our lives. And so to symbolize what it looks like to be a part of God's big, beautiful family, we're going to end today with communion. Like I said, we haven't been able to do communion our very favorite way like this in more than two years because of covid We are bringing it back today. So the band's going to come up. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to tell you all about it. Okay? Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the way that you love us, the way that you teach us, even in the most unexpected ways. God, I thank you. that you came and lived and died and rose to create this beautiful, all-inclusive family, that you said, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That I pray that instead of building walls around your church family, we would build longer and longer tables where everyone has a seat. And that as we sit together, as we learn from each other, as we not just tolerate each other, but lift each other up, that we would become more and more Christ-like, made more and more into the image of Jesus and the way he loved and moved and challenged and healed and cared for people. That's so I pray that as we do communion right now, you would make this just a really powerful time for us to remember who you are, your sacrifice, the fact that you gave us the option to be in your family. You made a way. And then we would remember our siblings all around this table. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.